open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew again. We're going through Matthew. And this week we're on Matthew chapter 22. It'll be our final week studying Matthew 22. This week, verses 41 to 46. Matthew 22, beginning with verse 41. Those of you who are visitors or new, we go through a book of the Bible in our scripture lesson. And you heard, well, actually, you haven't heard it yet. You'll hear it later. Um, And we also go through uh, particular texts in our time of preaching God's Word, studying it. And this week we're getting near the end of Matthew. uh, And this week it's verse 41 through 46, verses 41 to 46. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. This is the word of the Lord, and you say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Now, if we look at the beginning of verse 42, uh, we see the question that Jesus asks the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the time. They were the conservatives. They would have been the Baptists. Uh, the ones who are very, very specific about the Bible, about all its words, about all its significance, everything. The ones that were notorious for being the conservatives' conservative when it came to the things of God. So Jesus says to the Pharisees while they're gathered together, we know from the parallel texts um, in the other Gospels that this happens in the temple courts. So this is in the temple. It's public. Everybody sees what's going on. And the Pharisees, the scribes, all the religious leaders have been firing questions at Jesus. They're just pummeling him with questions, trying to get him to expose himself either to the hostile authority of the Roman Empire, get himself in trouble somehow by what he says with the Roman authority, or they're trying to get him in trouble with the Jews, the common people, being scandalized by what he says. And Jesus is, uh, as you would guess, wise. By the way, welcome back. Um, Jesus is wise, and Jesus is uh, unable to be cornered, which is what all of them are trying to do. They're trying to get him. Now, they've given up, and so Jesus then comes at them. And the first thing he says is, what do you think about the Christ whose son is he? Now, if I ask you what he means by the question, and specifically if I ask you what is the meaning of the word the Christ, Christ, what is your answer? What's the meaning of the word Christ? I have to admit it wasn't until I was an adult that I knew what Christ meant. It seems stupid. I'm stupid. But I didn't know. Every time you hear the word Christ, what you need to think is what? Messiah. Always think Messiah. When they say Christ, that's reference to the anointed one, which is the one that the Old Testament prophets prophesied was going to come. God's anointed one, the Messiah, Christ. Christ is the translation of the word Messiah. And so Jesus says, what do you think? He says it to the most meticulous biblical scholars of the time. He says, what do you think about the Christ? And then the question, whose son is he? And they respond in the only way that they could. I mean, it was clear from Scripture what the response had to be. They say what? Verse 42b, they said to him, to Jesus, the son of David. Jesus then continues his questioning of them, placing a conundrum before them, a riddle. And the heart of the riddle is the question whether the Pharisees are right in calling the Messiah the son of David. Understand that Jesus himself has been called the son of David and in the immediate past. 
and a number of other times during the three years of his public ministry. We know that when the crowds welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, what we celebrate is Palm Sunday, that as Jesus came into Jerusalem, what was it that the crowd said? Well, in Matthew 21, beginning with verse 9, we hear the crowds going ahead of Jesus and those who followed him were shouting what? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so this is ringing in the Pharisees' ears. Because later in that chapter... In the same context of the triumphal entry, when everybody's yelling, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. We read Matthew 21, 15, a few verses later, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, Jesus, and the children who were shouting in the temple, what? Hosanna to the son of David. They became what? They became indignant. They were furious. And so now when Jesus says, whose son is he? And they say, son of David. What do they know? Well, they know that this is what the popular press says. This is what Peoria says about Jesus. It says that he is the son of David. All right? And if you go earlier in the book of Matthew, or in any of the Gospels for that matter, you're going to find again and again that people call him the son of David. In Matthew 9:27, it says, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, what? Have mercy on us, son of David. In Matthew 12:23, all the crowds were amazed, we're told, and were saying, this man cannot be what? Not the Christ. This man can't be the Christ, can he? That's not what it says. It says, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? So what's being said here is that Jesus is the Christ. you understand that? When they call him the son of David, they're calling him the Messiah. And so when Jesus goes to the Pharisees and says, whose son is the Christ, the Messiah? And they answer, the son of David. They have been being driven wild by all the people constantly calling Jesus the son of David. Why? Because they don't believe he's the Messiah. Or believing they hate that he is the Messiah. Now, why would the Pharisees hate the fact that Jesus is the Messiah? Why would they hate Jesus as a Messiah? I mean, you realize this is at the, it's at the heart of why they kill him. Why do they hate it? Well, Jesus says, whose son is he? And when we go to Matthew 15:22, again, we see this theme. The Pharisees are saying he's the son of David. And then they hear all the times he was called that throughout his ministry, the three years. In Matthew 15:22, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Matthew 20, 30 and 31, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So everyone knew that the Messiah was to be the son of David, a descendant of David who would reign as David reigned from the throne of Judah. We all know that he wasn't literally the son, as we would say it, but the word son, as they used it, encompassed many, much more than simply your, your, your immediate male descendants. It would encompass any descendant. And so Jesus is living long after David lived. David has been in the ground dead for a long time, but he is the son of David. And this was what the Messiah was said to be, the son of David, someone who would reign as David reigned from the throne of Judah. Now, when I say that... Can you get in touch enough with your natural nationalistic bent that you feel what's going on here? If I were to say to you that somebody is the son of Lincoln, what would you think? If I were to say to you that someone is the son of Washington, you know, what would that tell you? If, if a candidate for the presidency today says, I'm the son of Reagan, and it wouldn't be the Democrats, right? What would you think? Well, what you would think is that this is a person that is going to restore our nation to the dignity that it had under David. 
right? If they believed the Messiah was going to be, was called by God to be the son of David, and they know David is what? Well, David's the one that finally cleaned out the land and gave them what? Peace. And how did David give them peace? Remember at the beginning of his career, what was said about him? What was said about him was Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. In other words, David was a mighty military military warrior, right? David was a king after the hearts of men. There was no indignity, right? No indignity with David. We could all wear our, wear our nation proudly. It wasn't a Mugabe, you know, in Zimbabwe. <laughs> he was a wonderful king. So now here comes the Messiah, and the Messiah is said to be the son of David, but does Jesus fulfill the expectations of any nationalistic person in how he lives out being the Messiah? He doesn't. You understand this. He's a failure, and how is he a failure? He's a failure because it's clear that his kingdom, as he put it, is not of this world. So here comes the Messiah. Everybody's expectations are there. He does have the power to quiet the storms. He has the power to cast out demons. He has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to feed them, and that's pretty good. All right? But it's very clear that he is not out like the zealots. Remember, Matthew was a zealot. He's not out to kick out the Roman authority and to give them back the dignity that they want. And you know, it is always the habit, always the habit. (laughs) I get a little scared every time I have an application that's not in my sermon. But can any of you guess what I'm about to say? It is always the habit of preachers to exchange the glory of God for the glory of the nation. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a church near my house, and uh, I may have told you this, but uh, my children find uh, a certain element of their uh, decoration to be a matter of great hilarity. You know what I'm going to say, right? Out in front of this church, there are three flagpoles. One pole has, I don't know what on it. One has the Christian flag, and one has the American flag. And um, now, where is Hannah or Taylor? Taylor, do you remember the the actual timeline of what happened? When when it was struck by lightning, what was it? I can't hear you, son. Speak up. But where the American flag was higher than the rest, so. The way it started was the American flag was higher than the Christian flag. Now, is that true in any way? I mean, be honest with me. Is it in any way true that America takes precedence over God? I'm patriotic. Don't don't yell at me. And I say don't yell at me because you know one of the most frequent causes of men being fired who are preachers in America in the last century is arguments over where the American and where the Christian flag should be in connection with the pulpit. Which side? At my former church, two former, there was a man during the Second World War, I knew the man who was fired from the church I served because of an argument that he engaged over the flag. Which side it should be on. And the funny thing is, most people have no idea what the, which side the flag should be on. If I were to ask you, probably very few of you could give me the actual description of how you know which flag has precedence. Even if I told you, it doesn't matter, it's Christian, American, just tell me which takes precedent. So here's the rule. You want to hear it? The rule is, if it's on your level, it is the flag to your right that takes precedence. If it's on my level, it's the flag to my right that takes precedence. Isn't that interesting? Now we have to engage the issue of which flag takes precedence. And that's where all the problems start. Why? Well, because it is always our habit to exchange the glory of God for the glory of man. 
All right. You understand this. And so what we say is America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. And so it's that way in South Africa. It's that way in Zambia. It's that way in France. It's that way in every single country. It was that way at the time of Christ. The Pharisees were more committed to the glory of their nation and their ethnic group than they were to God. They had absolutely no openness, none, to the Messiah not being a military ruler that would finally whoop up on the Romans and bust them loose. Okay? That was the scandal of Jesus being the Messiah. The son of David, what's David going to do, right? We all know what David's going to do. Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. And so the Pharisees are good religious leaders scratching the itching ears of the people they lead. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus isn't walking around kowtowing to the honor and the glory and, and the ethnicity and the nationalism of the Jewish people. Or another way of saying it is, Jesus is all about the glory of the Jewish people. And what is their glory? The glory of the Jewish people, according to Moses, is that they are nothings. (laughs) And why is that glorious? Because when you're a nothing, that's when God vindicates you and gives you glory. Not until you humble yourself. And so America today, we used to have glory. We were the the off-scourings of Europe. And then we were glorious. And then we worshipped God. Well, now we're not the offscourings of anybody. Oh, the whole world follows after us. We export heresy all over the world. Heard about it last night in Hong Kong from a Hong Kong man telling us what we've exported to his country and how it's destroying his country spiritually. The church. And that's America today. Now, I love America. You love America, many of you. Understand what it is to love America. I love my son. My wife loves my son. Understand what it is to love my son. And often it is to discipline him. And if I don't, I don't love him. And so here Jesus comes. He is the son of David. He is the one who follows in David's footsteps and is a lineal descendant. If you go to the book of, of Matthew, the first chapter, you have the lineage of, 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 of Jesus, right? And what does it say about Jesus? Well, it starts out with the genealogy, genealogy, and it says this. It says the record of the genealogy, and I hope somebody is, is, is noticing the fact that that long aside, I just seamlessly worked my way back into the sermon. <laughs> Those of you who don't come here often, you should be, you should be very, very pleased with me right now. Because <laughs> often when I go off, Carol has to pray, oh, Lord, bring them back. All right. So Matthew 1 says this, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right away we have the major theme struck and then we get specific. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, and you know we're getting hot here, right? Boaz... The father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon. By Bathsheba had been the wife of Uriah. And then skipping down to verse 16, it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So Jesus was what? Jesus is the son of David. Right? He's the son of David. Jesus' descent from the line of David was central to what the Jews knew the Messiah would be, but it was also central to the early church's confession of Christian faith. So you have the Gospels, they tell you the story of Jesus, and you have the book of Acts, which is the founding of the church. Then you move into doctrine. Romans 1, doctrine. These are the truths about the salvation of our souls upon which the church is founded. And right away at the beginning of Romans, we read this. Paul, Romans 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. What's a bondservant? I don't know what a bondservant is. 
What's a bondservant? Last night we were talking to this man from Hong Kong, and he was saying what a blessing uh, the availability of John Piper's and John MacArthur's sermons are on the Internet. Because now people who are in places where the church has absolutely no biblical preaching and leadership are able to just simply click on a link and listen to biblical sermons. And he was saying one of the things that his father, listening to a sermon recently, realized finally after years was that bondservant is not what the text says. What the text actually says there is doulos, in other words, slave. In other words, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, his father finally realized that when it says bondservant, it actually means slave. So which is the proper translation? Well, the answer to that is which one offends you more? Always be suspicious with translations. Now, I don't mean to say that you can't trust your Bible. You can. But always be a little bit suspicious. And if you find that it strokes you where you itch, there's something wrong. And every single person here would rather be called a bond servant, right, than a slave. Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Whose son? God's son. Okay. Concerning his son who was born what? Of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Who was declared the son of God? With power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now think about this. The very beginning of the nitpicky book of the Bible. Okay, is it fair to call Romans the nitpicky book of the Bible? It would be, it would have to vie with the book of Hebrews. Right? It's got to be either Romans or Hebrews. Both of them are doctrine, that nasty thing, doctrine. Both of them are meticulous. Both of them are specific. Both of them are dogmatic. Both of them are very word-specific. And right at the beginning, it says about Jesus that he is Christ Jesus, the Messiah Jesus. And then it says that the prophets of the old scriptures concerning God's Son said that he would be born a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, where did the prophet say this? Well, in Isaiah 9, 7, it says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There are many, many prophecies in the Old Testament that say things like this. The Messiah was to be David's descendant, David's son. Everybody agrees on this. And then Jesus, having gotten them to answer the right thing, He then asks a further question in verse 43. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, before I get into the actual riddle, the conundrum, but it's actually not a riddle or conundrum. It's actually a sermon Jesus is preaching to them. Before I get into that, did you notice the words that I just read? Look at the words. He said to them, then, how does David... Now, what do you learn from those words? You learn that Jesus is quoting an Old Testament passage and that he says what? Who wrote the Old Testament passage? Who wrote it? Look at your text. Who wrote it? David wrote it. You know, you read the commentaries today, you know what almost all of them say about this text? Almost all of them say, now, of course, we know that it's unlikely that David wrote that psalm. Or they say, now, of course, today, most scholars agree that David didn't write this psalm. It's what the Bible commentaries say. But Jesus says what? Jesus says, how then does David... So Jesus clearly attributes the writing of that psalm to David. You know what they then say? They they then say this. They say modern scholarship tells us this, but everybody at the time of Jesus believed that David wrote the psalm. 
And so it's the superiority of what's latest, looking down on the people that came before, saying, you know, they were kind of pig ignorant, but let's just get along for the ride. You understand that? Jesus says David wrote it. That's what Jesus says. Right here you have, you're you're faced with the question, you're faced always with Scripture. Do you believe God? And you say, not God, David. And I say, oh, 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 I got you. (laughs) Because look what comes next. Then it says what? Then how does David what? In the Spirit. So Jesus is packing a lot into the words. Jesus is saying that this Old Testament text was written by David, who was inspired by God when he wrote it. All right, now let's keep going. I hope by now you have trust in David's authorship because Jesus says it, and I hope you have trust in every word of Scripture being inspired by God. And therefore, this is the only book that you ever read that can bear the full weight of you being meticulous with it. I just always get a kick out on April 15th with how meticulous all you men are with the tax code. Boy, when it comes to the tax code, we can parse halves of words, syllables we can parse. We know that tax code inside and out. We're meticulous with it. And then when it comes to the Bible, we're like a bunch of slobs. You know, well, you know. And when we hear something like this and our eyes glaze over and we begin to yawn, we can't stay awake. Why? So Jesus says this. Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Note that Jesus here is quoting the chapter of the Old Testament. Do any of you know what it is? It is Psalm. But what Psalm? 110. And what is the most interesting fact about Psalm 110? Who said that? Did you say that? (laughs) Okay, say it out loud now. Now, how many of you know anything that Psalm 110 says? It's the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. The New Testament quotes it more frequently than any other chapter. So what's in Psalm 110? Do you know? And if you're a bright one, you'll say, well, uh, the Lord said to my Lord. (laughs) And you'll be right. What else does it say? You have any idea? You see, we all are slobs when it comes to Scripture. You know, we just sit back and say, bring me my food. Right? Jesus said to them, what's true about the Pharisees? They lived at a time when people were meticulous with the Word of God. Their entire reputation, their careers depended on being the experts' experts on Scripture. What's true about them? The truth is every single one of them could have recited this text from memory. Do you understand that? They would have known this from memory. But the truth is they don't know what the text says because Jesus shows it. Jesus has them wrapped up, tied up in knots, Immediately, because they don't what? They don't know what they're reciting. They don't know the words. And brothers and sisters, that's true of us in spades. We know the Bible. We can recite verse after verse. Some of you can recite chapter after chapter. And yet the meaning, the Holy Spirit meaning of the text, we don't think that the text of Scripture can really bear examination down to the words and the syllables. We think that we just need to get the big picture. The Evangelical Church in America today is a church that is filled with people who believe that all that's necessary is that you believe in Jesus. And, of course, on the one hand, that's true. But on the other hand, does anybody who really believes in Jesus completely repudiate the way that Jesus dealt with the Word of God? In other words, how can you believe in Jesus and have absolutely nothing similar to the way Jesus knows and uses the Word of God in your life? How do you believe in Jesus and not mimic him? If you get your brain around 
what Jesus shows concerning the inspiration of Scripture, I guarantee you your life will change. And you say, oh, only the Holy Spirit changes me. Say, who wrote wrote the Bible? Do you think that the Holy Spirit is now in a mode of dealing with us that he'll deal personally with every single one of you? You'll get a word of knowledge. Hey, I have it for you. It's here. This is your word of knowledge. Jesus honored the word of God. Jesus honored it down to the tense of verbs. Jesus honored it to specific nitpicky, scrupulous, punctilious, detailed, dogmatic, doctrinal, and all of a sudden everybody goes, dogmatic? I mean, really? And I say you have the entirely wrong idea of what dogmatic means. I'm not talking about the dogmaticism of a father who's watching a football game and his son happens to kick the soccer ball in front of the television at a key play. And the father dogmatically says to him, how many times do I have to tell you, get that ball out of the living room and get me a beer? Now that's dogmatism the way we normally think of it. It's being principled in the things that don't matter. Right? But dogmatism, when it's the truth of Scripture, is our lifeblood. We don't know who Jesus is until we learn that Jesus is both the son of David and what? And what? Come on. The son of God. We don't know Scripture until we know that Jesus is both the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world and that he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So, who is Jesus to you? Now, the minute I say that, all of you are off in existential la-la land. Who is Jesus to me? Well, that's a question I can deal with. You know, no, I'm not asking you that. I get so tired of people saying, my God. I think what? You've got a proprietary, like trademark, like copyright thing on them. And then what always comes after my God is what? My God would never judge anyone. My God never gets angry. My God is just like me, only less so. Because, of course, the key thing is that I rule him. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? I'm not asking who my God or your God is. I'm saying, who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus the son of David? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is he the Lord of your life? Last week we studied Jesus saying, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and all our souls and all our minds. Who is Jesus to you? Do you love him with all your heart and your soul and your mind? Then he said, the second commandment is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So how do you know if you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Because you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is, 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 is pleased to judge our love for him and for his Father and for the Holy Spirit by our judge, by the way that we love our neighbors. And who are our neighbors? Well, our neighbors are what? Who's our neighbor in America? Now, again, I'm patriotic, okay? Who are our neighbors, according to Jesus? You remember when he was asked the question, he told the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember who the neighbor of the Good Samaritan was? It's the person that was most hated by the Jews, the Samaritan. They were a mongrel people. 
Their religion was mongrel. Their ethnicity, their, their descent was mongrel, their bloodline. So who is an American's neighbor? Who? I can't hear you. Okay, illegal aliens, people that, wetbacks, right? That's what we call them because they swim the, what river? Rio Grande, yeah. Ah, that's not good enough. That's easy for us. We can love illegal aliens. Who are our neighbors? Who do we despise more than anybody else? No, not trailer trash. I'm not asking who is Indiana University's neighbor. Absolutely, Al-Qaeda. Muslims are our neighbors. Is there anybody America hates more than Islam? Really, honestly, is there anyone? No, I don't think so. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we see Jesus saying, whose son is he? And they say, son of David. And Jesus says, well, then how come David calls him Lord? And he's speaking through the Holy Spirit. And it was David who said it. How come he calls him Lord? Now, what's the question? Well, the question is this. Even in America, which worships youth, we still have a sense that the descendant is subordinate to the ancestor. Even in America today, we still have that sense. You know, that the son is not greater than the father, right? And so David cannot refer to somebody who comes from his loins as Lord because that places him above the one that he descended from. And so how is it that the son of David can be David's Lord? That's what Jesus is asking. And so what is the answer to it? Well, the answer to it is, who can be greater than David to a Jew? Just right off the top of your head. Who's greater than David to a Jew? No. Because Abraham is David's ancestor, uh, but he's not David's Lord, right? Who is greater? David is the apex. This is why the Messiah is going to be the son of David. This is why the Messiah is going to be, what? A branch coming out of David. There's only one person in Jewish history that is greater than King David, and that is God. Yahweh. Jesus is saying, I am God. No, he doesn't say it, does he? Isn't that interesting that every single time Jesus holds out to us a truth, which is our salvation, which is eternal life to us, there's always this opportunity for us to miss it. Have you ever noticed that? There's always an opportunity to miss it. Jesus isn't punching them directly. It's a glancing blow. You know, on one level they can buy into it because it's a conundrum, and people that are meticulous and pharisaical and lawyeristic always love these word games. And so they can buy into it as a word game, but Jesus is never about word games. Jesus is always about salvation. Redemption. The cross. And the only way that the Messiah can save us from our sins is if he is both the son of David and what? The son of God. If he is both what? The lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And if he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so even here, even here, even now at the very end of his life, even after they have spit on him and mocked him and plotted to kill him, even now Jesus in his kindness is holding, is holding out to them salvation. To the Pharisees. How can David say, he's the son of David, how can David call him Lord? Because he's God. That's why. Now, did you notice how the text ends? Here's the end. 
No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. End of story. End of story. It's it. That's over. That's all she wrote. The fat lady does done sung. You know how they say the opera ain't over until the fat lady sung or sing or sang or whatever. All right. It's over. Jesus has, has drawn the curtain, and this is how he leaves them. Son of David, huh? Why does he call him Lord? The only answer is because he's a son of God. And do you know that for the Pharisees, but now it's come to our neighbors, do you know that for the Muslims today, that this is the great scandal? You know what the Muslims say? They say Jesus existed. They say he did miracles. They say he was a great prophet. They'll say everything except that he is the Son of God. Why? Because it's absolutely scandalous to Muslims that God himself would allow himself to be sacrificed on a cross and to suffer and to die. Now, I've had them say it to me at Speaker's Corner in London. The minute they knew I was a Christian, when I spoke up publicly... It was filled with Muslims. It's a place where everybody goes and preaches in London. And the minute I identified myself as a Christian, do you remember, those of you that have been in this church for a while, do you remember what they said to me? They started mocking me and laughing at me and scorning me. And right in my face they said to me, Oh, some God you worship! Crucified! He's real strong. And all of a sudden, it became clear to me what Islam is and why it's a heresy. It's a heresy because it worships strength. It worships power. Do any of you remember what I said to them? What I said to them is, oh, so in other words, your God is strong, right? Yeah. Your God is powerful, right? Your God isn't weak. Your God doesn't give himself on a cross to purchase the forgiveness of sins, does he? No. And I said to them, then, your God is the United States of America. <laughs> and I said, because you can't touch us, our military might is beyond your conception. We are power. And they frothed at the mouth. I was glad there were policemen there. And then I said to them, but I said, America isn't God, is it? It is the power of this world, isn't it? But it's not God. Because the power of a God who would come down and take upon himself our flesh and go to the cross for us is a power that... The button of the nuclear warheads, the, the fastest fighter jet, that you know, the deepest submarine, it can never touch. And that's what Psalm 20 says. It says some trust in trident missiles. And some trust in nuclear warheads, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Jesus says... Whose son is he? I say to you today, who is Jesus to you? Who is he? Who is he? And do you know how I know? I know by how you treat Muslims. I know by how you treat your wife. Wasn't a good day in my home yesterday, so who is Jesus for me? Who is Jesus? When you treat your wife awfully, when you do that, what are you saying about Jesus to your wife? Who is Jesus to you wives who can't bring yourself to submit to a sinner? Who is Jesus to you? All right, that's easy for us because we can all admit that we fail in marriage, right? I mean, that's a no-brainer, <laughs> right? Okay, here's another one. When you're speaking to your professor or to your boss, to the investors in your company, and you're ashamed of the gospel, or I was talking to a woman in our first service who takes care of animals for a living, 
And you know today when an animal comes in and its life is hanging in the balance, you probably have many people in the world today more vulnerable than at any other time in their life. And you see them and what do you do? Do you just talk to them about their animal's prospects of living? Or do you talk to them about Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? You look at how you speak to people at their hour of need and whether you speak to them about the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah. You look at how you treat the oppressed, how you respond to Muslims. All of these things reveal the truth about your heart and Jesus. The way we treat each other. Whether you clean the toilets when it's your week to do it. Whether you show up to plant the trees. Whether you give sacrificially to the church. And yes, I get paid from your giving. And I'm not embarrassed at all to say the way you give to this church. It shows who Jesus is to you. Whether you miss one out of every two Sundays. Who's Jesus to somebody that shows up at church once every two weeks? Whether you rejoice in me preaching. And yes, I know that I'm nasty. But God has chosen nasty men to preach. Always. There's never a preacher that hasn't been nasty other than Jesus. How you respond to my preaching. All of this reveals the secrets of your heart. And what does Jesus say? He says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. That means that Jesus is the Son of God and you're to love him. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And if you love Jesus, you know how I'm going to know it? One of the principal ways I'm going to know it is because you are going to admit your failures to the people that you love most and to the people you're witnessing to. Your life is no longer going to be about you. It's going to be about Jesus. And, you know, once you have your eyes fixed on Jesus, it doesn't matter if you lose your pride of position. It doesn't matter if that person in front of you is in front of you the whole way across tap, the whole way, the whole doggone way. I drive tap across town. It drives me crazy. Two lanes the whole way. And they never get around anybody. I fantasize when I come up to Walnut that I can, like, go in the right turn lane and then speed around them. I once saw Chris Connell do that. (laughs) And I I knew then that I loved him. (laughs) It wasn't actually South Walnut. It was the left turn lane at 37, headed west. He went in the left turn lane. The minute the light turned green, he went around the person in front of him and sped west on tap. And I thought, right on, dude. You don't remember doing that, do you? Everybody in my car will testify that you did do it. (laughs) I'm not making you mad by telling you that, am I? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, come to Jesus, who is both the Son of David and the Son of God. And one last application of this. Um... Usually, by the way, I do stay at the pulpit. And I don't know why I'm doing this this week. But, um, one last application. Remember how I said that Jesus is meticulous with the handling of Scripture, right down to the very words. Remember that? If Jesus isn't the son of David, what does that mean for you? Let me, let me ask it the other way. If Jesus isn't the son of God... If David doesn't call him Lord, what does that mean for you? If he's not the Son of God, if David doesn't call him Lord, that means that you are lost in your sins and there is no hope eternally. Because only God can die and purchase our redemption. Only God. Okay? Now, It may not be as obvious to you. But if Jesus is not the son of David, what does that mean to you? What does it mean? Now, I'm going to actually ask you to answer. 
and you'll be wrong. What does it mean to you if Jesus is not the son of David? All errors all through history have either said that he isn't the son of God or that he isn't the son of David. All doctrine can be summed up with that. Mormons, he's not the son of God. Yeah, they'll say he's the son of God, but he's not God. Muslims, it's not the son of God. What if he is not the son of David? What are the implications for you? Or better yet, what is the implication for you? Now you can go ahead and say it, Cheryl. That's right. I mean, that's what immediately occurs to you. Well, then, he's not the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, right? And that's what they said in the early service, and that's right, but that's wrong. What is the implication, the tragedy for you, if he isn't the son of David? There's no substitutionary atonement, but if, we, if you can allow me to say we dealt with that in saying he's the son of God, we're still left with the unique thing about him not being the son of David. What is it? Uh, I love you, Elliot. Stand up. This is a fine young man. That's exactly right. And do you have a text that you would quote to make that point, Elliot? Jesus was tempted in all ways, like as we are, yet without sin. And therefore, we have a high priest, as Elliot said, who can sympathize with us in our weakness. Whatever your weakness is, he knows it. He knows it. You lose Jesus as the son of David, and you lose a high priest who can take you before the throne of grace.